Read that again. But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yes. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss, for the excellency of, know, of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ, and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death. Let's pray. Our Father, enlighten us this morning. May your spirit be among us to teach, to admonish, to rebuke, to encourage. As I said before, we need to hear from God today. And we know, Father, Son, you dwell with us through the Spirit. One God, three persons. You're here today. You're here today as real as if you were flesh and blood standing before us. It's no less real in the Spirit. Your presence is so sure, so tangible. Oh, you care for your people. Your ears are open to our prayer. You know our frailties, you know our weaknesses, you know our sins. And yet you bear with us because you set your love upon us. Thank you for the love of Christ. Thank you for the love of the cross. Thank you for the forgiveness of our sins. Thank you that when our righteousness does us no good, when our religion does us no good, we have Christ and Christ alone. May we rest this morning in him. In his name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Last week we heard Paul's warnings about the Judaizers. These were teaching a false gospel, trying to get people back under the bondage of a works-based religion. Sure, believe in Jesus, but you got to keep the law too. You've got to keep the dietary laws. You've got to be circumcised. You've got to keep the feasts and the festivals. You've got to live as a Jew if you're going to be saved. We saw the apostles met together and said, uh, no, 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 no. The Holy Spirit was poured out upon the Gentiles just like it was upon us. They're saved as much as we are saved without the law. And by the way, we couldn't keep the law ourselves. Why would we put it upon the Gentiles? Let me say again, we don't find our righteousness in ourselves. We find it in Christ. If you're looking inward for righteousness, you're looking in the wrong place. If you're looking inward for the assurance of your salvation, you're looking in the wrong place. We look to Christ by faith to be saved, and we look by faith to Christ to know we are saved. He's the righteous one. The ultimate truth of this is brought up, well, brought up to us in three specific texts. Turn with me to a couple of these. Colossians 2.14. I just want to, by way of remembrance, take you through a few of these texts. Colossians 2.14. Colossians 2.14. The Bible says, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us. They tried to bring them under the law, the ordinances of the law. Paul says that was against us. That wasn't for us. 
That's not going to help us be more right with God when it's against us. Which is contrary to us and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. In what? In the law. You know the one power that Satan had, Satan being represented by the principalities and powers, that is the forces of the spiritual world, you know what one benefit they had? We could never be perfectly righteous. That was their benefit. Their benefit was we would always fall short of God's standard. We could never be righteous enough. Then comes Christ, God in the flesh, taking to himself a human nature, and he triumphed over them in the law by keeping it perfectly and then giving us his righteousness. He was our substitute. He triumphed over them in the one thing they had against us, the law. We could never be perfectly righteous because we're fallen, depraved sinners. So in comes Jesus, not fallen, not depraved, virgin born, separate from the curse, but fully human. And he lives the life that Adam refused to live. He lived the life that I refused to live, that you refused to live. And then he said, oh, by the way, here's, here's a gift. It's my righteousness. Now, you're counted perfectly righteous before God. He triumphed over them in the one thing they had against us. You ever hear preachers say that Satan is the accuser of the brethren? He's not. That's old. He has nothing to accuse us with anymore. We have the righteousness of Christ. Who can speak against the righteousness of Christ? What can he say to slander us? Because it's not based in us, it's based in Christ. He took away his accusation. So someone says to you, well, Satan, he's the accuser of the... No, he's not. He was. He's not. His argument's been taken away. We are perfectly righteous in Christ. Let no man, therefore, or because of Christ's triumph, judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of a holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. Let no one judge you in regards to food and drink, holy days, new moons, Sabbaths. This covers pretty much the whole law of Moses, doesn't it? This covers the Hebrew roots movement, doesn't it? We talk about them. They hold you. you got to obey the law. you got to be live like a Jew. According to Paul, no, you don't. Go to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. Ephesians 2, 11. The Bible says, Wherefore remember that ye being in time past, Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh, made by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace, who had both made one 
and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain, that's of two, Jew and Gentile, one new man, so making peace. And that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you which were far off and to them that were nigh. For through him we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. Now therefore you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. We were strangers to the covenants, plural, of promise. What does that mean, plural? It means all of them, right? Not just salvation, all of the covenants, all of the promises. We were strangers to the covenants of promise, but we have been brought near in Christ. What does that mean? That means we are full inheritors of all of the covenants that God has made with his people through Christ. Not through us, through Christ. There's no wall of partition between Jew and Gentile. He made of the two one new man. We are fellow citizens. Where? With who? The Israel of God. We are part of God's people. Fellow citizens. Not secondary citizens. Fellow citizens. Go to Galatians 3, verse 6. Galatians 3, verse 6. These are all verses we covered last week. I just want to, by way of kind of reminder, look at these again. Galatians 3, 6. The Bible says, we were strangers. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm reading the wrong thing. <laughs> My bad. Forgive me. Even as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. You remember that time in the Bible when Abraham got circumcised and so God forgave him of his sins? Yeah, me neither. Either. Remember that time when Abraham came under the law in order to be redeemed? Well, no, it was 400 years after Abraham the law came, right? Do you know why God called Abraham when he did, before the law and before circumcision? So that those would never be considered as factors for salvation. Before the law was given and before circumcision came, Abraham was justified by believing God. Therefore, salvation could never come through those things. Even as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. Who are the children of Abraham? Well, you've got to be circumcised. No. No, no, no. The promise, this, this passage here, Abraham believed God and was counted for... That happened before he was circumcised. Before his household was circumcised. Well, you got to keep the feast days. When Abraham was accounted righteous, the feast days didn't exist. Therefore, they can't make us righteous. It has to be by faith and by faith alone. Nothing we do. Go to Philippians chapter 3, verse 3. Kind of working back towards our text here. Philippians 3, verse 3. Amen. We need to stand and be dismissed in prayer now. No, I'm just kidding. Philippians 3, verse 3, For we are the circumcision, which, by the way, he's writing to Gentiles here. This church is largely Gentile. It's a Roman city. He's saying we, 
or the circumcision. We're the Jews. No way, we're the Jews. We have the covenants of promise. How? How could these Gentiles, by faith, like Abraham, they believed God, it was accounted them for righteousness. They were children of Abraham by faith. For we are the circumcision, which worship God in the spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. He says, we are true Jews. What about the circumcised Jews? The Jews who profess Christ and yet keep the law of Moses. Look back at verse 2. Beware of the concision. We talked about this last week. What was the concision? That is a word that refers back to the Old Testament law of people who make cuttings in the flesh contrary to the law of God. In other words, these Jews who are finding their righteousness, righteousness in their circumcision... He says, you're the concision. You're actually making cuttings in the flesh that God does not demand and finding righteousness. Now, being circumcised is neither here nor there as a medical practice. But what I'm saying is, for righteousness, if we find our righteousness in that, we're actually doing things contrary to what God has commanded. Then Paul lays out his credentials after that. See, Paul, the accusation may come to Paul and say, well, Paul, you're only saying this because you don't want to keep the law of Moses because you're not a true Jew like we are. So Paul lays out his qualifications. Uh, excuse me. <laughs> I'm more qualified than any of you. Man, if, if salvation came by the law, I'm ahead of all of you. This isn't about my not qualifying. This is about what the Bible has taught, what the God has revealed. He's not saying this because he has less works than they do or because he's inferior to them. Let's go over it again. He's, he's a true Jew, even circumcised the eighth day, not a proselyte. He is from the only faithful tribe, Judah, or in Judah. When Judah went to apostasy, it was the tribe of Benjamin that was faithful. He's named after the first king of Israel, Saul. He's Greek-speaking, born in Tarsus, Yet Hebrew speaking, growing up in Jerusalem at the feet of Gamaliel, the premier teacher of the law. He knows the customs of the Hellenists, but holds fast to the tradition of the elders. He was a Pharisee. His zeal is testified to by his persecution of the church. He says, I was mad against them. I was crazy against them. As touching the law, he was blameless. I think what this means here is that a lot, of the, uh, a lot of the Pharisees had a problem, and that is they had a lot of secret sins. They, Jesus said they cleaned the outside of the cup, but the inside was filthy. I think Paul, what he's saying here is that wasn't me. I was sincere. I didn't have secret sins. I was sincerely trying to keep the law perfectly. Paul says, I'm not against their doctrine because I don't match up to it. I not only match up to it, I excel them in it. So why does Paul oppose them? That brings us to our text, verse 7. But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. What things were gained to him? All the credentials he just laid out. He says, I, I have, here's my credentials as a Jew. And those things I consider to be gain, I counted as loss for Christ. Not that they gained him anything, but they were believed to have gained him something. 
his Jewish heritage, his law-keeping, his privileges in life, these all he counted as loss for Christ. The term loss means worthless. In other words, everything he at one time considered of value before God, he says, it's all worthless. It's all worthless. They're of no value in pleasing God. They actually kept him from Christ, didn't they? They kept him from being justified by Christ. And he says he let go of those things so that he could grasp a hold of Christ. Listen, you cannot grasp a hold of Christ while holding other things in your hand. You can't. You can't hold on to Christ and hold on to your works at the same time. You cannot hold on to Christ and hold on to false religion at the same time. There is no, okay, I'm going to pray, I'm going to trust Christ over here, but then just in case, here's all my good works. I'm going to hang on to those. So that way, if there's any doubt when I get to heaven, I can say, but look, God, look at everything I did for you. Or I'm going to hold on, I'm going to trust Christ with my mouth, but then I'm going to hold on to my religion over here, just in case the Mormons are right. Just in case the Catholics are right. I'm going to hedge my bets. I'm going I'm to kind of gather it all. And Paul says, you can't do that. You have to let go of this to grab onto Christ. It takes both hands to grab onto Christ. These things cannot justify you. And holding on to them as some kind of worth only keeps you from being justified by faith alone. Verse 8. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss. For the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. Such a powerful verse, isn't it? Paul is saying there's no doubt. That's what doubtless means, no doubt. He's not holding on to his religious pedigree or his performance in any way. He has no doubt. He places no confidence in the flesh, he says, at all. He's holding on to Jesus. I say he's not holding on to Jesus with one hand and his religious pedigree with the other hand. I count them all as worthless, he says. For Paul, there is no just in case. I love that. There is Christ, and if Christ is not enough, he's going to perish. Listen, church, your faith in Christ should be so much in Christ that you admit that if that's not enough, I'm just going to go to hell then. If that's not enough. If Christ is not enough, I'm going to go to hell. I have no other bets to hedge. I have no other possessions. To, I have nothing to offer within myself. I am a sinner. I have nothing to offer God. If Christ is not enough, then I'm going to perish. And justly, by the way, I'm not mad about it. I'm not mad. If Christ is not enough, I will go to hell. I'm not mad because I deserve it but I have nothing else I can bring him. I have nothing else to offer him but what Christ has done. That's it. We ought to cast ourselves so fully upon Christ that there's no backup plan. It's Christ or nothing. When we stand before God, church, I don't think he's going to do this, but if he does, ask you, why should I let you into heaven? Your only plea should be because Christ died for my sins. And if that's not enough, don't let me in. 
If that's not enough, if he says, what else? Say, I have nothing else. I have nothing else. That's all I have. If, if that's not enough, I'm going to perish. If he alone cannot get me there, I can't help him. I'm too sinful. Paul says there's no doubt at all that I count all things, meaning, of course, all the things he listed a few verses ago, all those religious accomplishments. He counts all those things but lost or invaluable to him. He did this for the excellent knowledge of Christ Jesus our Lord. To know Christ, you have to let go of everything you think commends you to Christ. Everything. You cannot know Christ through religion or good works or your heritage. Being an American won't help you. You have to let go of all of that to know Christ Jesus. I love the hymn. I thought about it now. I should have sang it this morning. Rock of Ages, not the labor of my hands can fulfill the law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. That should be our cry, church. Wash me, or I... You, you justify me, or I perish. We have nothing to bring God. We have nothing to give of ourselves. I'm too sinful for that. It's Christ or nothing. That's Paul's perspective. Too many Christians today are holding on to, well, well, if that's not good enough, I got this too to offer. I got a backup plan. There is no backup plan. None. Of course I'm a Christian. Look at everything I do. Everything you do means nothing. Nothing. And my new person one time that said their car flew off a cliff. They prayed, said his prayer one more time, just in case the first one didn't take. But trusting in sinners, a prayer won't save you. A prayer won't say, we need to get away. Do you, do you remember the parable of the, uh, of the Pharisee, the publican? Man, the Pharisee had a great prayer. The publican, he's like, when he lifts his eyes to heaven, and all he says, be merciful to me, a sinner. That should be our, our heart's cry. Prayer doesn't save you. Baptism doesn't save you. Being a Baptist doesn't save you. Being a member of this church doesn't save you. Going to prayer meeting doesn't save you. Preaching at the game last night doesn't save you. Wearing a Jesus t-shirt doesn't save you. What saves you? What Christ did on the cross. If that's not our claim, church, we have no claim. No valid claim at all. Paul says he has suffered the loss of all that he once found precious. His birth pedigree, his religious works, his faithfulness, all of it is of no value to him. You know what a shock that was when he found that out? On that road to Damascus, who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus. Oh, boy. Jesus. 
Well, Jesus won't be impressed with my Jewishness because that's what put him to death. <laughs> Here's an old episode of the... You guys ever watch the old Adventures of Superman TV show? If you don't, go home today and watch it between services. Come back, we'll talk about it tonight. What a great show. I think me and, I think me and Gloria talked about that a couple of weeks ago. The old Superman show. There's an episode of that where this old man had these bonds. And he thought he was rich. He was, I mean, I mean he's spending like he's rich. He's, he's got so much money. And then he finds out at the end they're Confederate war bonds. and They're worth nothing. That's how the average person is going to be when they stand before Christ. Thinking, look at all this money. Look at all the riches I have. And Christ will be like, that's, that's not accepted here. We don't accept religious works. We don't accept good works. We don't accept your righteousness that you're offering. That's filthy rags. That's it. It's, it's of no value. I never knew you. Depart from me, you who work iniquity. You, so the people in that story, right? They're like, Lord, haven't we done this in your name and prophesied in your name and cast out devils in your name? We've done many wonderful works in your name, right? And what does Jesus say to them? Depart from me, ye who work iniquity. Even religious works apart from Christ are iniquitous works. They're sinful works. That should terrify us a little bit. That our only claim is Christ and not us. Our only claim is Christ. All of your good works, religious faithfulness, be it Christian, Jewish, Muslim, whatever else, whatever else out there, it's worthless in justifying you before God. Only the knowledge of Christ by faith brings salvation. Paul goes further. He says he counts them as dung. I'm very interested in this part of the verse. The King James says dung, and I've often heard that preached as being like manure. Some of the newer versions use the word rubbish. I have a better alternative for you. Turn to Matthew 15, 21. There is strong language evidence. The word that we translate as dung is referring to food cast out to dogs. Dog food. I'll show you where that intrigues me. Matthew 15, 21. Then Jesus went thence and departed into the coast of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan came out of the same coasts and cried unto him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My, my daughter is grievously vexed with the devil. But he answered her not a word. And his disciples came and besought him, saying, Send her away, for she crieth after us. But he answered and said, I am not sent, but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then came she and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, It is not meet to take the children's bread and cast it to the dogs. The Jews often refer to the Gentiles as dogs. Jesus is not being unkind here. Of course, he's testing her faith. He's, he's bringing her to a, a spiritual reality. Go back to Philippians chapter 3. I think what Paul is saying here, when he says, I count it as dung, is that all of his accomplishments were to him like food to be cast to the dogs. In other words, he's reversing the terms. Whereas the Jews 
couldn't cast the children's bread to the dogs. He said to hold on to those things of the Jewish law would be casting food to dogs. In other words, the, un the unrighteous, the unclean, the Gentile is now the Jew. It's now the law. It's now justification by the law. Not, not the law itself, but finding justification in the law, in circumcision. Paul is saying the legal privileges of the Jew are like crumbs thrown to dogs in comparison with the rich blessings of the gospel of Christ. I'm intrigued by that interpretation. Christ is the spiritual food of his people. Christ is the spiritual bread for his people. And when we reduce Christ to a religious work or a sinner's prayer or anything else, we are casting the food to the dogs. Because salvation is not found in works or in self or in the law but in eating and drinking Christ himself. And what did Christ say in John 6 was eating and drinking Christ? Those who come and believe on me are eating and drinking me. He is our legal inheritance by adoption. He is our food. He does this, Paul says, so that he may win Christ. This phrase is a beautiful picture. Christ is to be won like a prize but not by our accomplishment. You ever, you ever won a prize? I've won some prizes in my life. I had to work hard to win those prizes. They're all gone now. Trophies that got thrown away years ago. Certificates, medals, plaques, whatever. But I worked hard. I got an award for being the highest scorer on the basketball team two years in a row. You know how many free throws I practiced? How many hours I spent running back and forth on the court? Do you know how much time of my life I put into basketball? A lot. A lot. See, Christ isn't the kind of prize we win by doing a lot. He's won the prize and then given it to us. It says, here, you're the champion. <laughs> here, you're the champion. Here, you're the champion. He won the prize of our redemption. And then he gave it to us. Gave it to us. We don't earn it. We don't work for it. We simply receive it from him. Verse 9. And be found in him not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Being found in Christ, this means both on the day of judgment as well as here in this life. By the way, you and I should be found in this life, in Christ. We should be found, we should be visibly seen to be in Christ. There should be no doubt. No one should look at this and go, oh, I hope Debbie's saved, but I don't know. The life she lives, when I mean, she goes to church, but the other stuff. We should live our lives in such a way Joe Eskenazi passed away four months ago. Four months ago, he professed Christ as Savior. In four months, he bore enough fruit for me to say, that man's in heaven today. I have no doubt. I don't have a sliver of doubt that he was saved. Because every time we went to visit him, 
every time we spoke to him, every time we saw him, he was found to be in Christ. He loved to sing hymns. He loved to hear the word read. He loved to pray. He came to church, but it was very hard for him to do so. Wanted to come back if he had his hell ending and turn for the worse. Even his grandson, who wanted to Christ, never thought he'd step foot in the church. But he pushed through and came. Christian, you and I should be found in Christ. There should be no doubt when people look at us and say, is that person really a Christian? Yeah, I don't know. Look at all this sin in their life. We should be found to be in Christ, not having our own righteousness. I know a lot of people today, not a lot, but that's an overstatement, but more than a handful of people who are professing Christians because of what they do. Paul says, I want to be found in Christ, not having my own righteousness. So when these people who attack Paul in chapter 1, to add affliction to his bonds, they say, oh, that Paul, what a terrible person. Paul's like, you don't know the half of it. <laughs> you don't know the half of it. I am terrible, but I have Christ. Well, Paul, he's against the law because he doesn't want to live by the law. He goes, oh, man, I live by the law so well. I ended up so poor. But I gave it all up to know Christ. I want to be found in Christ, not by my own righteousness, but by his righteousness. Like I said, when I stand before God, if the question comes up, why? I want to say, because of Christ. And he says, not good enough, I'll have to say, okay, then I perish. I have nothing else. I'm not pulling a wagon behind me going, that's not enough? Okay, well, how about if I add this? How about this? Because even that which I do, which is good and righteous, there's a taint of my own pride, of my own wrong motives. I'm not pure all the time. I'll be honest with you, there's times that I've gotten up to preach because it's my job to do so. But I didn't feel like I wanted to do it. It's impure. That can never be offered to God as an excuse to put me in heaven. There's been times I've gone out to street preach because I felt like people should see me out street preaching, not because I desired to share the gospel with the lost. I can't offer that and say, well, God, see, I'm faithful. I do this stuff. I should get into heaven. That, it's tainted by my own whatever. There's times I get prideful. I've done things in the ministry out of anger. I can't offer that to Christ. What I'm telling you is I'm not perfectly pure. So if it's Christ, not Christ, it's not me. I can't help him. I am mortal. I am fallen. I am depraved. And apart from him, I can do no righteousness. So how can my righteousness help him? No one is found in Christ with their own righteousness. If you're in Christ today, it's because you have been imputed his righteousness. His righteousness alone. When Paul's place in Christ is examined, it must be righteousness imputed by faith. Verse 10. 
that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering be made conformable unto his death. Paul gives us here the point and purpose of the Christian life. The point and purpose of the Christian life is to know Christ. It's not to get to heaven. I get so tired of that. Watching people teach you how to go out and reach the lost. Ask them this question. Do you know you're going to heaven? That's not where we start. Going to heaven is a byproduct of knowing God. The point of the cross was not to get us into heaven. It was to reconcile us to God. That's what it was about. It wasn't about an end destination. It's about knowing Christ. So many people today, we, we, we teach this and then we, we live our lives as if the Christian life is just about getting to heaven. Punch my ticket, I'm good to go. Let me go live my life now. It's not about punching a ticket. It's not a train ride. It's reconciliation with a holy God. Adam walked with God in the garden. Reconciliation with God is about restoring that fellowship. Walking with God, talking with God, knowing God. It's not about getting back to the garden. It's about the relationship they had in the garden before the fall came. That's what salvation's about. Go ahead and listen to this, John 3, 17, 3. And this is life eternal, that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. This is eternal life, that they know you and Jesus Christ. Do you know God this morning? I don't mean, have you been, you know, do you, do you profess Christ? I mean, do you know Christ this morning? Do you desire to know Christ this morning? If you don't desire to know Christ, you're not saved. You need to repent and believe the gospel. If religion is just going to church on Sunday and, and living by a moral code and doing Christian things, that's, you're not saved. If you don't desire to know God more, to be conformed to his image, you're not saved. Because that's the point of salvation. It's to walk and know God as Adam walked and knew God. Eternal life is not just living a really long time. It's knowing and being known by Christ. It's a lifelong pursuit, by the way, the knowledge of God. But we should be growing every day in that knowledge. So what does he want to know of Christ? Go back to Philippians 3.10. He wants to know the power of his resurrection... Such awesome power was displayed in the resurrection of Jesus, was it not? Yes. I mean, amazing power yes. to raise the dead back to life from within himself. I mean, Lazarus, he was raised from the outside, somebody outside of him. But Christ was not. He was raised from within himself. Such power was on display there. That power is available to all of God's people today. That same power that raised Christ from the dead. We have the resurrection power of Christ, which raises us to new spiritual life. And we walk in new life through the resurrection power of Jesus. 
Paul wants to grow in his sanctification by experiencing the power of the resurrection of Christ. This should be all of our desire, by the way. To know more of the power of Christ, more power in overcoming our sin, more power in walking in holiness, more power in prayer, more victory over temptation. The second thing he wanted to experience was the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. The early church saw it as a good thing to suffer for Christ, didn't they? They saw it as fellowship with Christ. Christ Jesus died and experienced resurrection power. The early church saw suffering as a death to self that brought resurrection power in their lives. As you suffer for Christ, you die more to self. You die more to sin. You die more to the world. And you are therefore raised to walk in new spiritual life with more spiritual power. He ends the verse with being made conformable unto his death. This is an ongoing action, by the way, being made conformable. He wants his life to be an ongoing conformity to the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me challenge you this morning. Let go of anything that you believe commends you to Christ. Throw yourself completely upon Christ. And say with me, if, if it's not Christ, it's nothing. If that's not enough, then I'm going to hell. I trust so much in Christ, I have no backup plan. Take hold of Christ by faith as your only merit for salvation. We are saved when we rest in the work of the cross as the payment for our sin. Let me challenge you, who are Christians, to strive to know Christ more and more. Be made conformable to his death. Die more to sin. Die more to yourself. Die more to your desires, your plans, your hopes, your dreams. And I promise you, as you do that, you will experience the resurrection power of Christ in your life. But death must come before resurrection. That doesn't come the other way. You're not going to live in the flesh and get the power of Christ in your life. Resurrection power doesn't come to the living. It only comes to the dead. We must die to self to be raised with Christ. Long, church, long for the resurrection power of Christ. This will mean death. Death involves suffering. You're going to suffer. When you die to self, you always suffer, don't you? We're such selfish creatures. Denying ourselves anything brings suffering, doesn't it? It's going to hurt a little bit. I promise you, though, it's worth it. I promise you it's worth it. There can be no resurrection without death first. You must die to self, to ambition, to longing, to desire, to preferences, to feelings, if you're going to rise wholly to walk in the power of Christ. Die to self, experience Christ's resurrection power, be found in him, not having your own righteousness, but that which is through Christ alone. Church, have no backup plan. Let go of everything and grab on to Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for this time and the word this morning and a powerful passage of Scripture that we read. I thank you for Paul 
being the example to us of seeking after the resurrection power of Christ. We must die to experience resurrection. If I don't die to myself, I'll never walk in power. As long as I let self live, I'll be powerless. Resurrection power only comes to those who are dead. Lord, slay me. Slay my desires, my preferences, my pride. Slay my self-will, my self-ambition. And raise me to walk in Christ. Raise us to walk in Christ. So many Christians today have so little power today because they're alive to themselves. Slay our church, Lord, that we walk in power. We overcome sin. We lead others to the Savior. Bless the offering to come. May all be honored and glory to Christ. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.